Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear from Mario Ritter Jr. and Anna Mateo. Later, Steve Ember will present our American history series, The Making of a Nation. But first, here is Mario Ritter Jr. A dead farm animal that floated across the sea from China to an island held by Taiwan has upset Taiwanese officials. They are concerned because tests showed that the hog carried a disease that could affect the island's pig farming industry. The pig washed up on December 31st on Kinmen, a small island held by Taiwan. Local agricultural inspectors carried out tests and found that the hog had African swine flu. The infectious disease led to the destruction of at least 600,000 pigs last year in mainland China. Taiwanese officials want China to provide more information about the hog so officials can prevent the swine flu from spreading to Taiwan. But officials in Beijing have not answered a letter about the incident from Taiwan's Council of Agriculture. Some experts consider the lack of communication as a sign that relations between the sides have worsened. Huang Kuibo is with National Chengchur University in Taiwan. He said, When relations are better, Beijing would definitely first give Taiwan a heads up and say, Here's how things are. Communist Party officials in mainland China are demanding that Taiwan agree that the two sides are a single country before talks can take place. Taiwanese officials have watched for African swine flu since China confirmed its first case last August. The official Xinhua News Agency said 81 cases had been reported in 21 Chinese provinces by early December. Taiwan's Central News Agency reported that African swine flu could severely harm the island's pig farming industry if it spread. That industry is valued at more than $2.5 billion. Before the hog washed up on Kinmen, officials at Taiwan's airports had already been increasing punishments for people who brought pig meat 
into the country. Another hog later washed up on another small island. That animal, however, was not infected. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen discussed the incident in her New Year's speech. She demanded that China provide more information. The other side's government has never, according to agreements, given honest and timely reports on the outbreak to Taiwan, she said. In a message on Facebook, government spokesperson Golas Yotaka questioned whether the second hog incident was a biochemical bomb from China. Tsai's party supports long-term self-rule from China. However, Chinese President Xi Jinping has said Taiwan must accept that Taiwan is part of China and the two must unify. Mainland China's Taiwan Affairs Office said last month that it does not need to provide information about animal health issues to the island. The office said that, under a 2010 agricultural inspection agreement between the two sides, Taiwan does not permit Chinese imports of pig meat. I'm Mario Ritter, Jr. Malaysia's National News Agency reported Monday that the nation's ruling families have agreed to vote for a new king. King Muhammad V served as Malaysia's largely ceremonial chief of state until he unexpectedly resigned on Sunday. The vote on his replacement reportedly will take place on January 24th. The king resigned after being in power for just two years. This is the first time one of Malaysia's kings has stepped down before completing a five-year term. No reason was given for the resignation. The 49-year-old leader had only just returned to his official duties last week after spending two months on medical leave. Images reportedly showing him getting married in Russia appeared on social media in December. Posts identified his new wife as Oksana Voevodina, who won a Miss Moscow beauty competition in 2015. Officials working for King Mohammed have yet to answer requests for comment on the pictures 
or reports of a marriage. Media has also reported tension between the king and the government of Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad. Mahathir, who served as Malaysia's Prime Minister from 1981 to 2003, returned to power last year. Malaysia is a constitutional monarchy, where the king's duties are largely ceremonial, and the rest of government operates independently. The king's duties include acting as protector of Islam in the Muslim-majority country. The king's approval is needed for the appointment of a prime minister and other top officials. Malaysia's nine royal families take turns to provide a king, who is chosen through a vote in a council of rulers. This group is made up of the nine households, most of which are led by a sultan. A vote must be held within four weeks of a king leaving office. Heads of six of the nine households met on Monday at the National Palace to decide a date for the election of a new king. The council agreed that a new king would be elected January 24th. That person would then officially take power on January 31st, the council said in a statement. One sultan could not attend the meeting Monday because he was unwell, while another was outside the country, the council said. The third sultan who was not present was King Muhammad. Earlier on Monday, Mahathir said the government hoped the council would elect a new king as soon as possible. He added that the government needed to keep the king informed of certain matters, Bernama reported. Mahathir led the opposition to a historic election win in May, defeating a group that had governed Malaysia for 60 years. From VOA Learning English, this is the Health and Lifestyle Report. Most healthy children between the ages of 4 and 10 grow about 5 centimeters a year. Parents often notice this growth by how quickly their children grow out of their clothes and shoes. However, when a child does not reach usual growth markers, It could be a sign of a health problem. One American family knew something might be wrong when their son was able to fit into the same clothes season after season. Spencer Bayman 
is a boy who loves to play baseball. My goal is to play college baseball. But at age 11, he was much shorter than everyone on his team. Although his small size did not stop Spencer from playing the sport he loves, it did make him feel different. I want to be as tall as these kids. At first, Spencer's parents thought their son was just small. But over time, they began to worry that something was wrong. When springtime came around and baseball season started, Spencer tried on his old cleats, a type of sports shoe. They still easily fit on his feet. That is when his mom called the doctor. It really set in one year coming out of winter into spring when he got out his cleats for spring baseball and he put them on they fit. And they never should have fit. Those were from the spring prior. Spencer's parents went to see Dr. Bert Backrack. He is the chief of pediatric endocrinology at University of Missouri Healthcare. After much measuring and testing, Dr. Backrack found the cause of Spencer's growth failure, a growth hormone deficiency. In other words, Spencer's body was not making enough growth hormone. Hormones are chemicals in the body. They send messages from one cell to another. Growth hormones are necessary for physical growth in children. The levels of growth hormone rise throughout childhood. The levels are highest during puberty. This hormone helps to control many functions in the body. Dr. Backrack explains. Growth hormone just doesn't affect your growth. It affects your muscle mass and fat distribution, so that affects your cholesterol. It also affects your overall sense of well-being. Growth hormone deficiency is a disorder involving the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is small, about the size of a pea. It is located at the base of the brain. This small gland produces many hormones, not just the growth hormone. Several things can affect the pituitary gland's ability to produce growth hormones. Growth hormone deficiency is mainly the result of damage to the pituitary gland, or hypothalamus, while the fetus is growing in the mother's womb. It can also happen as a result of genetic mutation. And in some cases, children who severely lack emotional and social experiences do not produce enough growth hormone and stop growing. These children often start growing again when they begin receiving the care and human interaction they need. In Spencer's case, he needed daily hormone injections. His mother has been giving him the injection every day for the past two years. In that time, Spencer has grown about 15 centimeters. But just in case he does not grow as tall as he would like, he has a reminder to himself written into each of his baseball hats. It says HDMH, which means height doesn't measure heart. When used this way, heart 
means bravery, determination, and emotional strength, all things that Spencer is not in short supply of. And that's the Health and Lifestyle Report. I'm Ana Mateo. From VOA Learning English, welcome to The Making of a Nation. I'm Steve Ember. Last time, we talked about the Amistad case. The Amistad was a slave ship from Cuba. In 1839, it appeared off the eastern coast of the United States. The Africans on the ship had killed white crew members including the captain. They demanded to go back home to Africa. But the two remaining slave traders on the ship secretly sailed the Amistad toward the United States. The U.S. government put the Africans in a low-security prison in New Haven, Connecticut, and it made plans to take the Africans to court. A judge would decide whether the occupants of the ship were slaves who had rebelled, murderers, or captives who had been kidnapped from their homes. The Amistad case brought attention once again to the issue of slavery in the United States. At the time, slavery was legal and an important part of the country's economy, but the U.S and several European countries had banned the international slave trade. A small group of activists wanted to totally end slavery. They believed slavery was a sin. But in the 1830s, most Americans did not support these anti-slavery activists known as abolitionists. Most Americans, first of all, were racist and secondly, saw these people as utter fanatics who were intent on destroying the Union. Julie Roy Jeffrey is a professor of history at Goucher College in Maryland. She says newspapers reported on the Amistad case and people began talking about slavery and the slave trade. Slowly, some Americans' feelings toward the abolitionist movement and enslaved Africans changed. For example, there was a play put on in New York City called The Black Schooner that was based on the Amistad incident. And there were many, many people who went to see it. It became a popular event. And wax figures of the captives were exhibited in various places in the United States, and artists drew pictures of them. The abolitionists wanted to make more Americans sympathetic to the Amistad Africans. They found lawyers to represent them, paid tutors to teach them, and organized outdoor exercises to keep them healthy and visible. Howard Jones taught history at the University of Virginia. He says one of the most popular members of the Amistad Africans was an eight-year-old boy who had learned English. The boy told the public about his life in Africa and about the conditions on the slave ship that brought him across the Atlantic Ocean. The Amistad case 
also was increasingly becoming a political issue. People wanted to know what President Martin Van Buren was going to do about the case. Historian Howard Jones says Van Buren found the position difficult. He did not want to anger Southern voters who supported slavery and wanted to make the African slave trade legal again. He also did not want to anger Northern voters who believed the Amistad Africans had been mistreated. Van Buren did what any good politician would do, and that was to try to dodge the issues, stay away from it. He couldn't understand why 40-plus by this time black people should affect anything happening in high political society. But the Amistad issue would not go away. The case began in a circuit court. After three days, it went to a district court. The district court judge ruled that the African slave trade was illegal under international treaties. For that reason, the Africans were wrongly taken. President Van Buren was worried the decision would cause more political problems for him, so he ordered the nation's highest court, the Supreme Court, to hear the case. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at that time was Joseph Story. Story did not like slavery, but he did not support the abolitionist movement either. He thought its ideas opposed the rule of law. The abolitionists had good lawyers, but they knew they needed more help arguing their case in the Supreme Court. So they turned to former President John Quincy Adams. At the time, Adams was a congressman, not an abolitionist. But he led a campaign against an 1836 rule restricting anti-slavery petitions. Adams said the rule was a violation of the constitutional right to petition Congress. Historian Julie Jeffrey says the 1836 gag rule, as it was called, helped the abolitionists' cause. It became partly a freedom of speech issue, not just about slavery, but about the rights of citizens to speak out and to be heard by their representatives in Congress. Yet John Quincy Adams was not excited about arguing the Amistad case. He was 72 years old, nearly blind, and very busy. But the issue of the Amistad Africans troubled him. Howard Jones says Adams believed capturing people and enslaving them was immoral, especially in a country like the United States. In the end, Adams agreed to defend the Africans. And he makes the argument in the court case that we have the Declaration of Independence right there on that wall, and that says that life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, it doesn't say for white people only or anything like that. He was arguing, trying to argue, that it's something that's available for everyone. It's part of the justice system. Chief Justice Joseph Story did not totally accept Adams' argument or suggest that any kind of slavery was wrong, 
but he did agree with the district court that these Africans had been taken illegally from their homes. They were not and had never been slaves, Justice Story said. They were free people and should be returned home. So in 1841, the remaining 30 or so members of the Amistad captives got on a ship called the Gentleman and returned to West Africa. Howard Jones says the incident was the only time he knows that black people who had been brought to the New World as slaves actually made it back home. And how they do it by winning in the American court system. This was just unheard of. But the decision was basically that it doesn't matter whether you are black, white, purple, green, or whatever color you are, you have been kidnapped. And so therefore you have, and Joseph Story said this in his decision, which really opened the door for a lot of arguments, that under the eternal principles of justice, you have the inherent right of self-defense, even if you must kill your captors. Howard Jones says the Supreme Court decision also gave the abolitionists a new sense of power. And the abolitionists immediately printed pamphlets, leaflets, had talks, everything they could to show that these people went free. And their implication was this is what's going to happen to slavery itself, that this is a great victory for the black man. But the Amistad case did not really change the situation in the United States for most black people. Many were the children of slaves and could not argue that they had been kidnapped from Africa. And it was still legal to trade slaves across U.S. state borders. The Amistad case also did not solve all the problems in the abolitionist movement. Julie Roy Jeffries says during the trials, many abolitionists worked together, including blacks and whites. It sometimes worked very well and it sometimes didn't work so well, but it was certainly one of the, the first times that blacks and whites had worked so fruitfully together. After the Amistad victory, though, the abolitionist movement broke into different groups. Ms. Jeffrey says some black abolitionists wanted more respect from white activists. Other abolitionists just had different ideas about how best to end slavery, by trying to change the country's laws or by appealing to Americans' moral sense of right and wrong. Abolitionism did influence other movements, however. One was the missionary movement. Julie Roy Jeffrey says Christian missionaries had already been going to Africa hoping to persuade people to follow their religion. But the Amistad case and abolitionism made more people want to share their beliefs with others. Some missionaries even converted the Amistad captives to Christianity and returned to West Africa with them. Ms. Jeffrey says the abolitionist movement also helped create the women's movement in the middle of the 1800s. She says 
most 19th century white women mainly cared for their families in the home, but women abolitionists played an important public role. They weighed in on the most political question of the day. They um, took on activities like collecting petition signatures and raising money and giving speeches. As a result, Ms. Jeffrey says, some women came to believe they had a right to develop their own beliefs and have political power. Sometimes they propped up their, um, their activism by appealing to things like the Bible. Um, one woman I remember said something like, I read my Bible and I know what it tells me. And she was opposing the minister in her church and she was a very active abolitionist. Yet, even if abolitionism still did not personally affect most Americans, it made an increasing number of people question whether they wanted slavery to continue. I'm Steve Ember, inviting you to join us next time for The Making of a Nation, American History from VOA Learning English. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. It was a series of upsets at the Golden Globes Awards Ceremony Sunday night in Los Angeles, California. One of the biggest surprises was the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's choice for Best Movie Drama. It chose Bohemian Rhapsody, a film about the life of musician Freddie Mercury over the heavily favored A Star is Born, a film about imaginary musicians. A Star is Born entered the night with several major nominations. It was expected to win at least two. But the film won only a music award for its song, Shallow. Instead, two of the biggest awards Sunday night went to Bohemian Rhapsody. The movie was hugely popular with the public, but received less praise from critics. Rami Malek, who played Mercury, also won the Golden Globe for Best Actor. Thank you to Freddie Mercury for giving me the joy of a lifetime, Malek said in his acceptance speech. Another shocker came in the Best Actress drama group. Lady Gaga was widely expected to take home the award for her work in A Star is Born. It was the musician's first leading part. But the prize went to Glenn Close for her performance in The Wife. 
the audience stood up and cheered when Close's name was announced. It was Close's second Golden Globe Award in 14 nominations. She has never won an Oscar. Political speeches were mostly absent from the ceremony until actor Christian Bale got up to accept his award for Best Actor Comedy. He won for the darkly humorous movie Vice, which centered on the career of American politician and former vice president Dick Cheney. Bale joked, Thank you to Satan for giving me inspiration for this role. Actors Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg hosted the Globes. Oh also won a Globe herself for her performance in the BBC America drama series Killing Eve. 88 voting members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association choose the award winners. They are not related to the Academy Awards, but Golden Globe wins could influence Oscar voters. Oscar nomination voting began Monday. The award for Best Picture in the musical or comedy group went to Green Book, a film under a cloud of dispute. The movie is based on the lives of real people, a black man and his white bodyguard. In the movie, the characters travel together in America's deep south during the 1960s. Many race-based laws were still in place at that time. But real-life family members say the representation of the relationship between the men is false. They were not friends, but interacted as employer and employee. Also, many critics found that the movie depended on racial stereotypes. Mahershala Ali won a Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe for his performance in Green Book. He thanked the man on whom his character was based. He carried himself with a dignity that inspired me every day, Ali said. Although the Globes are chosen by foreign members of the press, they do not permit the inclusion of foreign-language films in the Best Picture categories. That left the Oscar hopeful from Netflix, Roma, out of the top group. Alfonso Cuaron still won Best Director, and the Mexican-born filmmaker's movie won Best Foreign Language Film. This film would not have been possible without the specific colors that made me who I am, said Cuaron. Netflix also won numerous awards for the series The Kaminsky Method, and FX's The Americans won for Best Drama Series in its sixth and final season. Olivia Colman won Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical Film for her part as Queen Anne in The Favorite. Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Movie 
went to the Oscar frontrunner Regina King for her work in If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm Katie Weaver. And I'm Ashley Thompson. From VOA Learning English, this is the Health and Lifestyle Report. Most healthy children between the ages of 4 and 10 grow about 5 centimeters a year. Parents often notice this growth by how quickly their children grow out of their clothes and shoes. However, when a child does not reach usual growth markers, it could be a sign of a health problem. One American family knew something might be wrong when their son was able to fit into the same clothes season after season. Spencer Bayman is a boy who loves to play baseball. My goal is to play college baseball. But at age 11, he was much shorter than everyone on his team. Although his small size did not stop Spencer from playing the sport he loves, it did make him feel different. I want to be as tall as these kids. At first, Spencer's parents thought their son was just small. But over time, they began to worry that something was wrong. When springtime came around and baseball season started, Spencer tried on his old cleats, a type of sports shoe. They still easily fit on his feet. That is when his mom called the doctor. It really set in one year coming out of winter into spring when he got out his cleats for spring baseball and he put them on they fit and they never should have fit those were from the spring prior spencer's parents went to see dr bert backrack he is the chief of pediatric endocrinology at university of missouri Healthcare. after much measuring and testing dr backrack found the cause of Spencer's growth failure, a growth hormone deficiency. In other words, Spencer's body was not making enough growth hormone. Hormones are chemicals in the body. They send messages from one cell to another. Growth hormones are necessary for physical growth in children. The levels of growth hormone rise throughout childhood. The levels are highest during puberty. This hormone helps to control many functions in the body. Dr. Backrack explains. Growth hormone just doesn't affect your growth. It affects your muscle mass and fat distribution, so that affects your cholesterol. It also affects your overall sense of well-being. Growth hormone deficiency is a disorder involving the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is small, about the size of a pea. It is located at the base of the brain. This small gland produces many hormones, not just the growth hormone. Several things can affect the pituitary gland's ability to produce growth hormones. Growth hormone deficiency is mainly the result of damage to the pituitary gland, or hypothalamus, while the fetus is growing in the mother's womb. 
It can also happen as a result of genetic mutation. And in some cases, children who severely lack emotional and social experiences do not produce enough growth hormone and stop growing. These children often start growing again when they begin receiving the care and human interaction they need. In Spencer's case, he needed daily hormone injections. His mother has been giving him the injection every day for the past two years. In that time, Spencer has grown about 15 centimeters. But just in case he does not grow as tall as he would like, he has a reminder to himself written into each of his baseball hats. It says HDMH, which means height doesn't measure heart. When used this way, heart means bravery, determination, and emotional strength, all things that Spencer is not in short supply of. And that's the Health and Lifestyle Report. I'm Ana Mateo. Britain is studying how its roads and shipping could be affected if the country leaves the European Union without an agreement between the two sides. The study, which began Monday, is meant to show possible traffic problems if the country leaves the EU on March 29th. That is when a new British law is set to go into effect. It would require Britain to cancel its EU membership even if the government is not finished negotiating an exit agreement. Prime Minister Theresa May is attempting to win parliamentary approval of an EU exit agreement to avoid the automatic exit. But British lawmakers are expected to reject the deal. A vote on the measure is set for next week. Almost 100 trucks took part in the first day of testing. The trucks traveled about 30 kilometers from a closed airport to the port of Dover in southeastern England. May's government has repeatedly warned that an automatic exit from the EU without an agreement would cause severe economic problems. It is widely believed that a no-deal exit would lead to new taxes and customs barriers in Britain. This would likely slow Britain's transportation links to the rest of Europe. Transportation experts have predicted major traffic problems leading into and out of ports like Dover. Such problems could also lead to shortages of food and medicine. Some British lawmakers have criticized the tests as a waste of time and money. Britain's Road Haulage Association has described the tests as 
too little, too late. The group suggested holding additional transport exercises that are much bigger. Charlie Elphick is a Conservative Party lawmaker from Dover. He told the Reuters news agency that he believes any tests need to be much larger to effectively measure possible effects on transportation. Less than a hundred lorries is a drop in the ocean compared to the more than ten thousand that go to the Channel ports every day, he said. Supporters of Britain's exit from the EU. Have admitted the split would lead to some economic disruption in the beginning, but they believe that such effects would only be short term. In the long run, they expect Britain to gain new economic and political strength outside of the EU. Groups opposed to Britain's withdrawal. Say it will isolate the country too much from Europe, and will hurt the economy. I'm Katie Weaver. 更多听力，请访问五幺 voa. dot com. Turkey's president has criticized the United States national security adviser for his comments about a planned U.S. troop withdrawal from Syria. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan spoke Tuesday in Ankara. He said U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton made a serious mistake in setting conditions for Turkey's military after the U.S. withdrawal. Erdogan also said. That Bolton met with Turkish officials in Ankara Tuesday, but left Turkey without holding expected talks with the president. Last month, U.S. President Donald Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw its troops from Syria. The 2,000 U.S. troops are in Syria. To fight the Islamic State militant group, a spokesman for the Defense Department, Commander Sean Robertson, said that they have an approved framework for withdrawal. He said commanders are now carrying out the withdrawal, but he added that framework is conditions based. Robertson said. The Defense Department would not discuss details about the action because of security concerns. In December, administration officials estimated that the withdrawal would take about 30 days, but diplomatic and military officials have pushed back that time period. Before his visit. Bolton said that Turkey must plan military action with the U.S. He also said that U.S. troops would not withdraw unless Turkey guaranteed that Kurdish fighters in the area would be safe. 
The Kurdish YPG militia are a U.S. ally in the fight against the Islamic State. The group was troubled by the plans for a U.S. withdrawal. Erdogan has said he would deal with the YPG in the same way as he would the Islamic State. He told the ruling AK party in Parliament, If they are terrorists, we will do what is necessary no matter where they come from. Turkey considers the YPG to be part of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, which is banned in the country. Erdogan said Turkey had reached a clear understanding with Trump. Reuters reports that a high-level Turkish official said Bolton had asked to see Erdogan and that his earlier comments may have influenced the meeting's cancellation. Since Trump's announcement, U.S. and coalition warplanes have bombed some of the last remaining Islamic State positions in Syria. Officials said the bombing campaign has reduced the group's communications abilities by almost half. Kurdish Syrian Democratic Forces have also taken the towns of Hajin, Abu Hassam, and Kashma from the Islamic State. However, the Kurdish YPG fighters continue to be the subject of tensions between Turkey and the U.S. Turkey also opposes the U.S. giving its bases to Kurdish fighters when the withdrawal takes place. During his visit, Bolton was joined by the top U.S. military officer, General Joseph Dunford, and other officials. I'm Mario Ritter, Jr. 请访问五幺voa.com. In the American state of California, prisoners are usually able to get out of jail before their sentence is completed. Some prisoners win a conditional or temporary release from jail through acts of kindness or by doing good things. Others are approved for release after showing a change in behavior, like becoming a religious leader or advising others against drug use. But for Walter Erlon Woods, the path to freedom was a podcast. Woods was released from the San Quentin State Prison after serving 21 years of a 31-year jail sentence for attempted armed robbery. Last November, California Governor Jerry Brown canceled his sentence. Brown noted Woods' leadership in helping other prisoners and his work on Ear Hustle, a podcast in which he talks about everyday life 
inside the prison. The show has been very successful since it was launched in 2017. It has been downloaded 20 million times by people all over the world. On the program, Erlon Woods and Nigel Poor, a prison volunteer, talk with San Quentin prisoners about their struggles. Some prisoners talk about the difficulty of sharing a 1.5-meter by 3-meter room with another person. Others tell why they take care of frogs or insects as if they were household pets. Some describe the effects of solitary confinement or being given a death sentence. Woods helps listeners understand prison life. Poor is a San Francisco Bay Area artist who has volunteered at San Quentin since 2011. She asks thoughtful questions that sometimes lead prisoners to seriously consider what put them in prison. Wood said the podcast offers listeners a closer look into lives most people do not spend much time thinking about. People get to see the car chases, they get to see the trial, but they don't know what happens after you get to prison. Wood said, We've been able to really humanize people, and people realize that those in prison are just people who made dumb decisions. Jerry Brown agreed. In the letter issued to end his sentence, the now former governor wrote that Woods has clearly shown that he is no longer the man he was when he committed this crime. The podcast project started after Poor contacted Woods. In 2016, Poor heard about a podcast talent competition. She asked San Quentin's spokesman, Sam Robinson, for permission to enter the prison. Another co-creator, Antoine Williams, agreed to do sound design for the project. Williams is serving 15 years for armed robbery. Poor said their idea for a podcast from San Quentin beat more than 1,500 other proposals from 53 countries and received support from a group of broadcasters. She added, Everyone was shocked when we won, especially the prison." Ear Hustle has found international success. Listeners send cards and letters from as far away as New Zealand, Cotter, and Mauritius. The free show can be heard in prisons throughout California and Britain. One program talked about Wood's first day as a free man. The first thing Woods did after his release on November 30th was get a look at the Pacific Ocean around San Francisco Bay. It looked, in his words, as far as the eye can see. New Ear Hustle shows will be released later this year. 
They will include stories of Wood's life outside of prison. The show will also have discussions with other prisoners released after long sentences. Woods and Poor plan to visit maximum security jails and tell the stories of their prisoners. There's a lot of people that's in there that should be out, Wood said. I created a podcast, but I'm not the exception. I'm Jonathan Evans. 更多听力，请访问五幺 voa dot com。From VOA Learning English, welcome to the Making of a Nation, a weekly program of American history for people learning American English. I'm Steve Ember. Last time we talked about the Amistad case. The Amistad was a slave ship from Cuba. In 1839, it appeared off the eastern coast of the United States. The Africans on the ship had killed white crew members, including the captain. They demanded to go back home to Africa, but the two remaining slave traders on the ship secretly sailed the Amistad toward the United States. The U.S. government put the Africans in a low-security prison in New Haven, Connecticut. And it made plans to take the Africans to court. A judge would decide whether the occupants of the ship were slaves who had rebelled, murderers, or captives who had been kidnapped from their homes. The Amistad case brought attention once again to the issue of slavery in the United States. At the time, slavery was legal. And an important part of the country's economy, but the U.S. and several European countries had banned the international slave trade. A small group of activists wanted to totally end slavery. They believed slavery was a sin, but in the 1830s, most Americans did not support these anti-slavery activists, known as. Abolitionists. Most Americans, first of all, were racist, and secondly, saw these people as utter fanatics who were intent on destroying the Union. Julie Roy Jeffrey is a professor of history at Goucher College in Maryland. She says newspapers reported on the Amistad case, and people began talking about slavery and the slave trade. Slowly. Some Americans' feelings toward the abolitionist movement and enslaved Africans changed. For example, there was a play put on in New York City called *The Black Schooner* that was based on the Amistad incident, and there were many, many people who went to see it. It became a popular event, and wax figures of the captives were exhibited in various places in the United States, and artists drew pictures of them. The abolitionists wanted to make more Americans sympathetic to the Amistad Africans. They found lawyers to represent them, paid tutors to teach them, and organized outdoor exercises. 
to keep them healthy and visible. Howard Jones taught history at the University of Virginia. He says one of the most popular members of the Amistad Africans was an eight-year-old boy who had learned English. The boy told the public about his life in Africa and about the conditions on the slave ship that brought him across the Atlantic Ocean. The Amistad case also was increasingly becoming a political issue. People wanted to know what President Martin Van Buren was going to do about the case. Historian Howard Jones says Van Buren found the position difficult. He did not want to anger Southern voters who supported slavery and wanted to make the African slave trade legal again. He also did not want to anger Northern voters who believed the Amistad Africans had been mistreated. Van Buren did what any good politician would do, and that was to try to dodge the issues, stay away from it. He couldn't understand why 40-plus, by this time, black people should affect anything happening in high political society. But the Amistad issue would not go away. The case began in a circuit court. After three days, it went to a district court. The district court judge ruled that the African slave trade was illegal under international treaties. For that reason, the Africans were wrongly taken. President Van Buren was worried the decision would cause more political problems for him, so he ordered the nation's highest court, the Supreme Court, to hear the case. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at that time was Joseph Story. Story did not like slavery, but he did not support the abolitionist movement either. He thought its ideas opposed the rule of law. The abolitionists had good lawyers, but they knew they needed more help arguing their case in the Supreme Court. So they turned to former President John Quincy Adams. At the time, Adams was a congressman, not an abolitionist. But he led a campaign against an 1836 rule restricting anti-slavery petitions. Adams said the rule was a violation of the constitutional right to petition Congress. Historian Julie Jeffrey says the 1836 gag rule, as it was called, helped the abolitionists' cause. It became partly a freedom of speech issue, not just about slavery, but about the rights of citizens to speak out and to be heard by their representatives in Congress. Yet John Quincy Adams was not excited about arguing the Amistad case. He was 72 years old, nearly blind, and very busy. But the issue of the Amistad Africans troubled him. Howard Jones says Adams believed capturing people and enslaving them was immoral, especially in a country like the United States. In the end, Adams agreed to defend the Africans. 
makes the argument in the court case that we have the Declaration of Independence right there on that wall, and that says that life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, it doesn't say for white people only or anything like that. He was arguing, trying to argue, that it's something that's available for everyone. It's part of the justice system. Chief Justice Joseph Story did not totally accept Adams' argument or suggest that any kind of slavery was wrong, but he did agree with the district court that these Africans had been taken illegally from their homes. They were not and had never been slaves, Justice Story said. They were free people and should be returned home. So in 1841, the remaining 30 or so members of the Amistad captives got on a ship called the Gentleman and returned to West Africa. Howard Jones says the incident was the only time he knows that black people who had been brought to the New World as slaves actually made it back home. And how they do it by winning in the American court system. This was just unheard of. But the decision was basically that it doesn't matter whether you are black, white, purple, green, or whatever color you are, you have been kidnapped. And so therefore you have, and Joseph Story said this in his decision, which really opened the door for a lot of arguments, that under the eternal principles of justice, you have the inherent right of self-defense, even if you must kill your captors. Howard Jones says the Supreme Court decision also gave the abolitionists a new sense of power. And the abolitionists immediately printed pamphlets, leaflets, had talks, everything they could to show that these people went free. And their implication was this is what's going to happen to slavery itself, that this is a great victory for the black man. But the Amistad case did not really change the situation in the United States for most black people. Many were the children of slaves and could not argue that they had been kidnapped from Africa. And it was still legal to trade slaves across U.S. state borders. The Amistad case also did not solve all the problems in the abolitionist movement. Julie Roy Jeffries says during the trials, many abolitionists worked together, including blacks and whites. It sometimes worked very well and it sometimes didn't work so well, but it was certainly one of the, the first times that blacks and whites had worked so fruitfully together. After the Amistad victory, though, the abolitionist movement broke into different groups. Ms. Jeffrey says some black abolitionists wanted more respect from white activists. Other abolitionists just had different ideas about how best to end slavery, by trying to change the country's laws or by appealing to Americans' moral sense of right and wrong. Abolitionism did influence other movements, however. One was the missionary movement. Julie Roy Jeffrey says Christian missionaries had already been going to Africa hoping to persuade people to follow their religion. 
but the Amistad case and abolitionism made more people want to share their beliefs with others. Some missionaries even converted the Amistad captives to Christianity and returned to West Africa with them. Ms. Jeffrey says the abolitionist movement also helped create the women's movement in the middle of the 1800s. She says most 19th century white women mainly cared for their families in the home, but women abolitionists played an important public role. They weighed in on the most political question of the day. They um, took on activities like collecting petition signatures and raising money and giving speeches. As a result, Ms. Jeffrey says, some women came to believe they had a right to develop their own beliefs and have political power. Sometimes they propped up their um, their activism by appealing to things like the Bible. Um, one woman I remember said something like, I read my Bible and I know what it tells me. And she was opposing the minister in her church and she was a very active abolitionist. Yet, even if abolitionism still did not personally affect most Americans, it made an increasing number of people question whether they wanted slavery to continue. Next week, we will tell about the short presidency of William Henry Harrison. And we will continue talking about how slavery influenced presidents and politics over the coming years. I'm Steve Ember, inviting you to join us next time for The Making of a Nation, American History from VOA Learning English. <laughs>